Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things your eyes have seen. And from Colossians 1. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And finally, James 1. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let me pray as we approach these texts. Lord, we pray for your spirit to come now. Uh, Just as we've prayed for you to minister to us in our confession, we pray now to minister that you administer to us in, our, in your word by your spirit. Lord, I thank you, feeling weak, that you are the one who accomplishes the mission that you send out your word to do and that uh, it never returns void. We pray for your spirit to be in my mind, on my heart, and in my lips. Lord, would you soften our hearts as we listen to your word? Would you encourage us, most of all, uh, with the great gift you've given to us of being your children and being called into your mission? We pray for your kindness to be evident this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the question before us this morning is why fostering? Uh, I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon on it up until maybe a couple years ago. Uh, At my previous church, there was a number of families who fostered and adopted. Seems strange, maybe off the wall. Uh, What I want to say, the reason why, is uh, fostering is actually an application of a larger biblical principle. Okay, fostering is a lens, so it's kind of a test case, all right? Uh, We're going to take this as a test case for a broader biblical principle of God's hospitality. God's generous hospitality is welcoming us into his home. And I'm going to argue this, that God's hospitality towards us, towards you and me, has actually called us into his mission. Uh, That is the ultimate goal, that we are set on mission. And as a final result, I'm going to argue that Christians should foster and adopt, but the bigger question is why? Why? Now, just as a side note, uh, a couple kind of prologue here, things here. Uh, I'm going to talk about fostering and adopting. Now, obviously, that's one small way. Well, it's a very large way, but that's one way of taking care of the fatherless. But in fact, there's a number of ways. All right? So I'm going to use this as a shorthand. When I say fostering or caring for the fatherless, I want you all to remember, I'm not simply talking about fostering, though that's clearly one of my concerns, but also 
What else can we do? We can do a tutoring program. We can have a VBS. We can have kids into our home. We can welcome in our neighborhood kids. We can be friends with these families that are clearly struggling. There's a hundred ways. My belief is that this is one of the uh, simplest ways in terms of actually getting it started. There's a whole bunch of on-ramps for us, which is nice. But uh, I do want to call us to this in particular. So we're going to look at three things today in connection to God's hospitality. It saves us, first of all. God's hospitality saves us. It's focused on the fatherless and the weak in contrast to the privileged and the powerful, and I really mean that. And it accomplishes his mission. Okay, so God's hospitality saves us. It's focused on the weak and the powerless, those who live in the margins, and it actually accomplishes his mission. And we'll, I'll make arguments for all that and help make sense a little bit of that. You know, in, all, in our culture, when we think hospitality, most of us, when I say that word, immediately you think, okay, table set, fine linen, uh, china plates, chargers, you have a white wine glass and a red wine glass, and make sure the oyster fork's on top, and, you know, crystal glasses and Grand Cru Bordeaux and this and that, and I'm going to cook white asparagus hand-picked by Belgian farmers. Okay, so we think about hospitality as some sort of display of wealth, basically. And that's kind of how our culture views it. I, I like this particular uh, satirist, uh, Christian Lander. He writes, uh, Hosts are expected to deliver a magical evening. The food must be done with... Uh, must be made with homemade, fresh, organic ingredients. The music must be just right. Ambient, new, but not too loud. And uh, the decorations inside the house should be subtle but elegant. The ultimate goal is to do a better job than the couple at the last dinner party uh, while attempting to make everyone jealous and sort of dislike you. Right? <laughs> the dinner party is an opportunity for people to be judged on their taste in food, wine, furniture, art, interior design, music, and books. Well, there's an element of truth there in that when we let people into our homes, they actually do get a taste. They're meant to get a taste of what the, the inner life of our home is like. Uh, of course, we love to whitewash those things and make them look better. But the other side of that is in our culture as well. It's not simply this display of wealth where we want, I want to convince you that I'm the best. There's also this side of hospitality where when I say hospitality, we immediately think, yeah, hospitality, hanging out with friends and people who are like me. Right? Hospitality is great. I love having people in my home because I'm going to hang out with my friends. And that's good. And it's good to have people in your homes. But in fact, biblically, uh, hospitality is the opposite of that. In fact, the word hospitality in the Greek is one of those few words you can kind of break down into its roots and it means love of stranger. Literally, love of stranger. Jesus says this in the Gospels. Uh, he'd been invited to a banquet he said to the man who had invited him there, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And you can remember Jesus has this parable of the wedding feast where the king wants to throw a feast for his son who's being married and he sends out invitations and uh, the people who are invited do not come. And so he goes out on the highways and he compels people simply to join in in the celebration for his son. Please come just join in in my delight in my son. These are strangers. And in fact, in one account, they have to be given wedding clothes. 
right? They're clearly not ready even. They're not worthy to be at the feast, but he compels them to come in, and it's clear that they have nothing to offer this king. They're simply welcomed in to the Father's joy. Our Lord did not save us uh, because he had hopes of us paying him back. Our Lord did not save us because he had hopes of us paying him back. Now, this is hard for me. You know, I'm, I'm a staunch introvert, okay? Uh, I like to sit quietly by myself. I like to read books. I love fine coffee. I would like to write and think and be by myself. Thank you very much. Loving the sojourner, not only hospitality open at my home, but loving people who really maybe are difficult to have in my home or people who are certainly not going to repay me is not something that's inherently attractive to me, okay? Until I remember this, until I remember this, uh, that I was the sojourner. I was the aimless refugee. I was the stranger. This is the gospel, and this is what we get from Colossians 1. Uh, God who made us, uh, in spite of our sin and in spite of the sin of our first parents, uh, we have actually estranged ourselves. That's the word the scriptures say. We've estranged ourselves from the kindness of God by our sin. Another uh, epistle says that we've alienated ourselves, hostile in our minds. So we, who were once alienated in our sin and dead in the darkness that we have learned from our families in the world, we, by the Father's rich mercy, have been rescued. We've been brought in to his fatherly care. We've been welcomed into the wedding feast of his chosen children. Well, just sit on that for a minute. He has adopted us and made us co-heirs with Jesus. That's what Colossians 1 says. We are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You have been made qualified as a saint because of the blood of Jesus. You are a son and a daughter of God and you have the full rights of the sons and daughters of God. You have the Father's ear just as Jesus has the Father's ear. And that is the gospel, that God's hospitality, his kindness to us, has rescued us. And you see this in Deuteronomy as well. You know, some of us tend to think gospel is just New Testament. No, 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 Old Testament as well. Be very clear about that. It says uh, that the Lord, God of heaven, heaven of heavens, who owns all the earth, has set his heart in love on you and chosen you. The Lord is God of gods, Lord of lords, And yet he has loved us. Loved us who were once sojourners. I think the problem for most of us, uh, the reason why the gospel seems to not apply to more than one situation or why it loses its luster is because we too quickly forget who we are. Once estranged, once alienated, once an enemy, once hostile and bittered towards the God who made us, now children in the house of the Lord, now joined to Christ, the husband, the risen one, now reconciled, forgiven, made a servant in the joyful kingdom, now heirs, heirs with Christ. Brothers and sisters, as we embrace our identity as once alienated, now child, once enemy, now beloved servant, we will understand the power of verse 19 in Deuteronomy 10. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. The Lord is saying that the whole reason he rescued them out of Egypt was a result of his hospitality, his kindness to strangers. Now, I just want to pause here. 
If you're here this morning and you know that you don't know the Lord or maybe you don't know where you stand with the Lord, I want you to know what's on offer this morning. If you come to the Lord and you confess your sins and you ask Him to make you a son or a daughter of God, what's on offer this morning is that you have access to the full kindness of God, to forgiveness of sins, to being welcomed into the family, to being having a place at the table. That's what the wedding feast is about. You have a place at the table that the Lord is compelling you. This morning, there's a reason you're here. The Lord is compelling you to come in. And certainly a gracious offer. Take this seriously. The Lord is certainly more hospitable than us. So our salvation, firstly, can be summarized as being made children. Hospitality. We've been welcomed into the family of God. Praise the Lord. That is insane. What we also need to consider is uh, just some of the biblical commands. What are the biblical commands for caring for the fatherless, for the sojourner, for the widow? You know, I say uh, that triad, fatherless, sojourner, widow, and that's because if you read through the Old Testament law, and I'd encourage you to do so, uh, one of the little triads of people that pop up all the time that we're supposed to be concerned about and caring for are the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. People who have no land, who have no one to bring their case before the judge, people who are without family, without connection, without power, without clout. These are the vulnerable. And in fact, there's many, many, many laws that are designed to protect the vulnerable from being trampled down by our greed and by our sin. That's the way the law of God operates. It's meant to protect. I just encourage you uh, as well, you know, in your bulletins we have these sermon discussions which we slave over for hours and hours. No, that's not true, but they are helpful. Uh, On page 14 and 15 you have the sermon discussion bit uh, which our home groups are going through. I've put in here a number of verses. Uh, This is like tip of the iceberg, right? Uh, I've put in here a number of verses that I just encourage you just to read through. Let the Word of God instruct you on what needs to be your care. Most of these are about caring for the fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner. A lot of these are simply about caring for the vulnerable and the weak. A lot of these are simply about God's hospitality towards us. The problem is not that there's not enough biblical citations for caring for the fatherless. The problem is that there's too many. So I'm just going to pick two. And these are the ones that are in your bulletin. James 1 and Deuteronomy 10. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So he's contrasting, on the one hand, religion that is worthless. He says, this religion that's worthless is, uh, those who practice it are people who hear the word and do nothing with it. You hear and you do nothing. Or, uh, in like suit, your tongue is unbridled and you destroy people with the evil that's actually in your heart. He said, that's worthless religion. So, then, what is worthy religion? Worthy religion has two parts. Uh, Personal purity. He says, keep yourself undefiled, unstained from the world. Personal purity. And we, I think... Christianity in America does a good job of emphasizing this. We're actually pretty good about emphasizing personal purity. And amen. But the other thing that most of us uh, miss, and I have missed this for many years, is that uh, true religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. It does not say fix their affliction. It says visit. Walk with them. Be present. Be available to them. Weep with them. Pray with them. Obviously help them if you can. But the call is to be present and available to these children, to widows. 
you know, I hesitated when I was writing this. That this the pulpit is not a platform for me to command my good ideas on you all, right? Uh, the pulpit is a place for the Word of God to instruct us. And I hesitated to make this such a... This is, this is important, a command. Until I started really thinking about James 1. Uh, James in his summary, okay, in his bumper sticker statement about what Christianity is, what the Christian life should look like, says, this is pure and undefiled religion before the Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress. This is not a suggestion on James' part. We are commanded as a simple part of our religion, an essential part of Christianity, is to care for the fatherless and the widows. Period. Period. This is not my good idea. This is certainly the word of God. Deuteronomy 10 says the same thing. Uh, the Lord, he names himself, okay, and this is sermon, Moses is preaching this sermon to the people of Israel. They're about to go into the land, and he says, listen, you need to obey God's commandments. In order to do that, you need to know who God is. And if you really want to know who the Lord is, he's majestic and high and holy, and he's God of gods. Lord of lords, who executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. If you want to know who your God is, he is the one who protects the fatherless and the vulnerable. And in fact, Psalm 68, the Lord is called this, Father of the fatherless, protector of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads the prisoners out to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. The Lord names himself Father of the fatherless. If you want to know God in his holy habitation, which is, by the way, a primary goal of the Christian life, to be with God in his glory, part of the thing that you need to know about God is that he is passionately on mission to protect the fatherless to protect the sojourner. This is not simply social gospel. This is the character of our God. So, if our salvation is uh, God's hospitality to us, welcoming us into his family, and on the other hand, he commands us to take care of the fatherless and the widow, how is it that these two match together? And I'm going to say that actually in our care for the uh, vulnerable for the fatherless, for the widow, uh, we are actually in the process of accomplishing God's mission. Care for the fatherless is a primary means of God accomplishing his mission in the earth. This is in two ways. First of all, by reflecting his character. And secondly, by bearing the cross. By taking up our cross. And we'll do those in order. So reflecting his character... Uh, you know, Genesis 1 uh, says that we bear the image of God, and so Adam is tasked to go and fill the earth with God's character, to kind of push out the walls of this garden that he's put in. And so, in fact, you find that God's people, their mission throughout all time has been to reflect God's character. Deuteronomy 4 says this, Keep these commandments and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes... That is to say, they hear the law of God. This is like an evangelistic tool in Moses' mind. Hearing the law of God, they will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? 
And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? God's character is reflected in his laws. Okay, that's the first step. We need to remember that God's character. You want to know who God is? Look at the things he commands. Look at the things he's concerned about. But in obeying God's laws, God is telling us, your job in obeying my law is to reflect who I am in the world. You are to be a statue, a, a, an image, a walking image of who God is. In fact, that's the Hebrew word for image. Tzelem, statue. Kings would put up these statues all over the land to reflect, this is my land. So when we have God's image, we're supposed to be filling the earth with God's character as we obey his laws. And people look at us and they say, wow, that God, he's very different. What's two things at least that are reflected about God as we engage in fostering and caring for the fatherless? First off, God's humility. Okay, first off, God's humility. Uh, you know, you don't realize how much glory you want from your children until you show up and they're like a terror. <laughs> okay, uh, and actually, it was a year ago, I came and interviewed here. And uh, I, of course, was not subject to this. I rode to church in the morning with Nate. And I was sequestered in the office, praying and thinking. However, my wife uh, happened to be dealing with one of our children, who will remain unnamed. And he threw the most atomic fit of his life that morning. <laughs> Biting, screaming, scratching, throwing, you know, the whole thing. And of course, we're both like totally petrified. Like, oh my gosh, like the weekend we're interviewing and why, one of our kids is blah, blah, blah. He's just terrifying. And it's so embarrassing. It's so embarrassing as a parent. But here's the thing. Uh, the Lord has put his name on us and he calls us his children. Uh, while that's extremely convicting to think, man, how often do I drag the name of the Lord through the mud? Here's the glory of it. The Lord has put his name on you. And he's not embarrassed about you. He's not ashamed of you. You know, Jesus, hours before he was betrayed and abandoned by his disciples, even knowing that they were going to do this, calls his disciples friends. Friends. That is not a light word for Jesus to call them. He calls them friends. Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Weak, frail, and failing, our God is extremely humble in putting his name on us. And he's certainly not ashamed of us. This is the glory of our God. This is the glory of our God. And certainly... Uh, we should not be above putting our name on our children and other children who have no family. The other thing that reflects about God's character is his relational care. And you see this in verse 15 and 20 of Deuteronomy 10. It says that the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers. And in 20, uh, the people are called to fear the Lord and serve him and hold fast to him. That's the same word that's used for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are to hold fast to each other. That is to say that the relationship that God intends to make with his people is not a cold transactional one. It's not, I accomplished this, and guess what? Here's all the benefits. It's, I have accomplished this salvation, and now you are my people. Hold fast to me. I have set my heart on you in love. Talk about sentimental language. I mean, this, this is overflowing with God's kindness. And certainly, the Lord comes, the Lord Jesus comes and touches and heals. You know, we love to talk about relational evangelism, right? And in reality, I think relational evangelism is where it's at. That's how I certainly came to know the Lord. 
people walking with me, being faithful. And yet, let me just encourage you with this. This is what the Lord is still up to. Okay? Uh, the Lord has always been about this, and he wanted his people to be marked by a welcoming, relational hospitality and evangelism. This is what Deuteronomy 10 is about. Uh, we have three fostering placements uh, in the year that we fostered, all of which were under seven weeks. So in some ways, we're still getting our feet wet. In each fostering placement, you have these kids brought into your home. They are taken from their homes. And yet they are still uh, belong to their parents. And so you have to bring the children to visits with their parents. As you can imagine, that's fairly terrifying. We were terrified to bring... Uh, these two girls in our home to go visit their parents. Not only because of the home they came out of, but because we thought their parents would hate us. You're the one who has my kids. You're the one. This was uh, more Bethany than myself. Uh, Bethany, on the first time she went to go and visit and meet this mom, uh, however, uh, instead of being terrified and being defensive, uh, she simply walked up to the mom and said, How are you? I'm glad to meet you. I've been praying for you. I bet you miss your kids. How can I pray for you in the midst of your kids being away? Uh, simple, simple kindness, okay? Simple kindness uh, for this mother, this woman who is certainly trapped in shame. Oh Lord, she, her children were taken away. Certainly trapped in her sin, gripped and faced with her utter failure. Uh, what could be more profound and surprising? than kindness from the person who's taking care of your kids. Uh, and of course, both times that, Ma, that Bethany got to have this interaction with the biological mothers, the, the women opened up, of course. Here's someone who's actually on my side. They actually care about me. Not to say that we have lasting, profound relationships with these women, but what it did show them was, listen, there is a God out there who actually exists. Now, Bethany did not do anything profound, okay? Okay. Uh, She's not, this is not a particularly inventive move on her part. I know, I've been reading books and I'm going to... No, she's just a Christian. She's just a Christian. She just showed up. She just showed up with the simplest care. But the simplest care, the simplest acts of kindness and, and openness uh, are profound, especially in the most terrible situations. They're profound in the most terrible situations. And I'm just going to confess, you know, my evangelism... Uh, is probably lesser than many others in this congregation. I am very, I'm not very gregarious. I am, when I'm here and talking with you guys on my own, I want to, I want to clock out. I want evangelism, though. I'm, I'm actually very passionate about it, but I want it on my own terms. Right? Uh, I want it with people who want to talk about epistemology and philosophy and the other things that I want to geek out about. I don't, in my flesh, want to be put in situations where I'm uncomfortable and where, in fact, I'm not prepared. And where what's needed for me is not my skill or the things that I can show, but humility. Openness. We protect ourselves, and we succeed, of course, in protecting ourselves from the most wretched. But in doing that, we also miss our chance to meet and minister in the most terrifying situations. We miss the glory and the sweetness of the gospel because we limit its power to those we deem safe. Are we surprised we don't see the power of God more often in our lives and in those around us? If we limit the way that the Lord can work, we should not be surprised. 
Caring for the fatherless is the way of the cross. Uh, and the reason why I say it like this, uh, Martin Luther, Reformation theologian, had, had two kind of ways of looking at Christianity. He said, uh, there's a false Christianity, which he called the theology of the cross. And there's a, the real Christianity, the biblical Christianity, which is a theo- I'm sorry, theology of the glory. That's what I meant to say on the right side. Or on the left side for you all. Theology of the cross, however, is the real biblical gro- uh, Christianity. The theology of glory is one where uh, I use God and I use the things he's commanded me to do to build up my own name, to make a great name for myself and uh, to prove that I am as holy as I'd like everyone to think. The theology of the cross, however, is one where I give up. I lose all claim to righteousness. I suffer willingly. I'm content with the lot the Lord gives me because I know that he will bring himself glory. He will make a name for himself. And what I want to commend to us this morning is that fostering is actually, can be, not always, certainly, is a great way to embrace the cross. A great way to embrace the cross. It's certainly not flashy, right? Fostering is not flashy. Maybe twice a week someone sees you, oh, it's a foster kid. Yeah, you're right. The rest of the time, you're by yourself in your home, taking care of these kids at all hours of the day, over and over. This is kind of like what we talked about with gentleness last week with God. His character is not raise its voice in the streets. It's not make a stir. He's not drawing attention to himself. Certainly, fostering passes that muster. But this is also the way the Lord loves to grow his kingdom. The parable of the mustard seed is important here. Mustard seed being the smallest. The Lord loves to grow his kingdom from these small, inconspicuous beginnings. The Lord loves to grow his kingdom in the margins, in the unseen margins in the places most of us would rather avoid. Uh, This is the irony. This is the central irony and enigma of Christianity. Okay, The cross. That in dying, in laying our lives down, actually life is gotten. Real, lasting life is gotten. We triumph through our defeat, and we don't need to prove it either. (laughs) That's the hard part for me. I want to prove it. So how is fostering uh, like bearing the cross? Maybe it sounds a little bit dramatic. Uh, Well, first off, it's tiring. Amen, young parents. It's tiring to have kids in your home of any age, uh, but certainly when they're not yours and you're making up for years of lack of discipline. It's also immensely costly. Uh, There's a high emotional cost, but it's also, lastly, immensely valuable. Our first foster placement, we had two girls to put in our home. We had the, they were the youngest two of three girls. And uh, they had grown up in a meth lab. And uh, not only where the meth was being produced, but also where it was being sold. And if you know anything about meth, it's extremely volatile. It can uh, blow up at any minute. Chemical burns. Um, so these girls grew up there. And with not only the instability of the chemical, but also the clientele coming in and out of their lives all the time, uh, and so these girls showed up in our home, and we had a three-year-old and a six-month-old. And the three-year-old, uh, she was probably at the mental and emotional level of an 18-month-old, but so much more terrified than that. Uh, you know, she came into our home, and she didn't speak a word. Uh, and she would stay on the edge of, every, of, of the room always, and always uh, wide-eyed, always terrified, uh, would eat anything that we gave to her, just down it as if she'd never eaten. Uh, she would scream every time we'd try and change her or put her in the bath or put her in her bed by herself. Uh, the six-month-old, uh, when they came to the home to find her, 
you know, she was, it took 40 minutes to find her. It took the police 40 minutes to find her because she was behind debris. She came to her home and she had tight skin, not chubby like it should have been. She could not sit up. She could not roll over. And so I, I'm in seminary. I'm thinking, yeah, surely there's some sort of badge, you know, I got that's going to give me skills to handle this well. After three nights of having these kids in my home, uh, I, was, I was reduced to shambles. I was a mess. Uh, I'd hoped that simply the cause was going to give me the strength but in fact, I found myself totally uh, unable to change these girls, unable to keep my own emotional stamina. I love to serve if I'm going to feel fine afterwards. It was empty. It's tiring. What the Lord showed me in that time was that uh, He was not after my skills or my theological acumen, He was after my entire life. He was after me laying down my life. Dying. Dying to what I thought I owned. I did have something tremendous to offer them, in fact, but it was not my own faulty love. Uh, it was simply the kindness of God. Uh, simply the kindness of God. Uh, that they'd have a home. Three square meals a day. Uh, someone to pray for them. In reality, the reason why this is cross-bearing is because uh, there is no power in the foster parent to save. There is no power in any of us to save, but only to suffer for and walk with these poor children. Uh, the power is in the one who works new life in the unnoticed margins. Uh, Henry Nouwen, who was a professor at Harvard for a number of years, loved the acclaim and felt himself becoming more and more cold to the Lord and ended up leaving Harvard and joining this community uh, of handicapped folk, ministering among them, living there. And he said that this was the beginning of him learning uh, the real depths of Christianity. Uh, I have a quote for you on the third page, uh, right in, inside the front cover. I'm just going to read uh, the pertinent part. He talks about how there's this kind of glitter of success and accomplishments, and efficiency, and yet underneath it there's this terrible current of despair. He says, the leaders, the leaders of the future will be those who dare to claim their irrelevance in the contemporary world as a divine vocation that allows them to enter into deep solidarity with the anguish underlying all the glitter of success and to bring the light of Jesus there. The point here is this. So long as we fail to leave behind the glittering success offered to us by the world, we will not really enter into the profound significance the Lord has for us in the simple, difficult, and obscure service of the fatherless and the widows in their distress. Let me make a few applications and then I'll be quiet. You know, first of all, uh, I just want to say this. I think a lot of us tend to think of service in the Christian life as kind of the icing on the cake. Uh, that, uh, you know, I'm kind of coasting down the hill and every once in a while I'm going to pedal here and there. Well, the, image, the other image is not that we're supposed to be climbing up the hill by our service. That's certainly not true. But the reality is, is that uh, in serving the Lord... Actually, the scriptures are convinced that if you give your life to serve the Lord, Jesus is certainly convinced that if you lay down your life and you pick up your cross in service, there 
is life. There is profound life and joy. You know, some of us are surprised. Why is my walk not more filled with joy? You know, why is it that my, I don't feel satisfied with the Lord as I did at first? Why is it that I feel dull? Let me just suggest this. Uh, we should not be surprised if our devotional life is dull. If our whole life is not given to the Lord in service. Uh, that is to say that service along with personal devotion, never divorce those, service along with personal devotion whets your appetite for what is really satisfying, and that is God's glory. Seeing Him unfold His kingdom. The serviceless Christian has taste buds which are numbed and dulled from the junk food of the self-serving life. I think for some of us, honestly, we just don't realize what we're missing out on in serving the Lord. Does that mean it's not costly? Obviously not. I think uh, we kind of end up in the, kind of the swampy eddy off to the side of the river of what God's doing, the great torrent of God's mission, and here we are in the swamp wondering, where's the glory? Where's the joy? Unwilling to throw ourselves in. Unwilling to let the Lord show his power. Uh, old pastor of mine says this, I believe we often feel exhausted and near capacity, but I've often wondered how much of this is our tendency to attempt two lives, one that serves all our own purposes, fears, and desires, another that attempts to blend in some sufficient amount of the honor of God. Many of us cannot discern the difference. Isaiah said, you are wearied by all your ways, but you did not say it's hopeless. Perhaps it's time to declare the hopelessness of the divided life. So let me just say this. There is no question, in my mind, and certainly not in the scriptures, that you, as a Christian, are called to care for the fatherless. Let me say it again. You, as a Christian, are called to care for the fatherless. Period. There is numerous scriptural commands. The question, the question, I want to put this to you, is how? Some of you should not be foster families. The question is, how will you care for the fatherless? First, I do want to encourage you. Listen, uh, some of you should become foster families. Some of you have delightful home life. And there's so much joy, and you rejoice in the delight that you have with your children. Open the grace that God has put in your home. Open that up. Bring children in. Now, you know, when Beth and I started, first started fostering, we were worried, okay, well, what's this going to do to our children? Are they going to learn from these kids? What's going to happen? Is this going to ruin our time? If anything, my children walked away a whole lot more compassionate than I could have ever manipulated or controlled or commanded. My children still pray for those girls. You know, I can't do that. Be a family on mission. Be a family on mission. Secondly, what if you can't foster? Okay, and this is a real question. This is not a cop-out. What if you can't foster? Maybe you're just not in a place. Um, two things. One, uh, provide support. Provide wraparound support. We would not, I would not be advocating this, okay, after my year of fostering, had our church not showed up randomly, people in our church with jugs of laundry detergent, things of food, and they'd come and give us hugs and pray for us and help us put our kids to bed. Unannounced. Boom. People are at home helping us. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> we needed that. We need people to call us and say, how are you guys doing? You're a week in. How's it going? We need people to be praying for us. 
need people helping us. We needed that terribly. You know, children, this is a great way for you guys to serve. Teenagers, can you babysit? You could probably babysit for these foster kids. Uh, families with young kids, do you like to have play dates? Please, play with these foster children. Uh, there is no question that if we as a church are about the caring of the fatherless, that we need people and families who are willing to wrap around those who are, have kids in their home. It does not mean all of us need to do that. It does mean all of us need to be on board. Well, the other thing is this. Uh, you need to be a grace-filled home. Okay, You need to be a home filled with the grace of God, with God's kindness. Uh, hospitality is great so long as there's actually something joyful and delightful in your home to offer. Right? If I'm bitter and conniving and uh, there's only angst and disunity in my home, uh, what am I offering? What's on the table? So the first thing, certainly for all of us to consider, is uh, what's your home life? Uh, what is your life with the Lord? Where, where is your devotion at with the Lord? Uh, some of you need to work on your marriages. Some of you need to get uh, sound with the Lord. Uh, some of you need to repent from heinous sins. Uh, the aim... The aim is not simply, however, so that you can get the badge. The aim is so that you can be of use in the kingdom. All right, last thing. Come to the dessert, April 16th. <laughs> this is a long extended plug for that dessert that night. April 16th, 6.30 p.m. We're going to have a dessert. We're going to talk. We're going to ask questions. You guys can... I needed people. I needed people to ask questions of and say, I have a stupid question. And I ask my question and then say, that's not a stupid question. That's a good question. Here's what you need to think about. That's what we're doing. Okay? This is your opportunity to come and get on board. Uh, let me pray for us. Lord, this is a, a great task. And one which, uh, if we're honest, most of us feel ill-equipped. Certainly uncomfortable. Lord, would you give us joy in serving you? Would you make our lives one that are set apart? That we uh, embrace the gift of serving you and see that, in fact, our sharing in the inheritance of the saints makes us useful in the kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would give us strength and encouragement that you would attend to us by your spirit throughout this week. Be on our hearts and on our minds, Lord. Give us joy in our service to you. We pray these things in your holy and wonderful and kind name. Amen.